With cloud computing, we started with virtual machines. They allow us to virtualize an entire server while providing strong isolation and security. Then containers came along. They allow us to virtualize just our applications, making containers faster and less resource intensive than VMs. But with these gains, we lose strong isolation. What if we could have the speed and resource efficiency of containers coupled with the enhanced security and isolation of VMs? In this episode of MobyCast, John and Chris kick off a three-part series on the future of containers. We dive deep on micro-VMs, unikernels, and container sandboxes, understanding what they are, how they work, and how well they combine the best of both VM and container worlds. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. All right, before we get started today, I just I got a quick story to tell you, um, and it's related to software engineering. So yesterday, I decided, was it yesterday? No, it was two days ago, I decided to switch out the kitchen sink faucet, and no problem, couple hour job, right? You've done that before, easy peasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier than others, depends. <laughs> right, so it turned into a 10-hour day of, mm. you know, lots of trips to the hardware store, Actually giving up, you know, being like, Kelly, I'm not going to be able to do this. We're going to have to call a plumber tomorrow after I've already spent nine and a half hours. Um, and then, you know, a final push at the end and success yes. did it. There you like go. after the kids went to bed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing was that it made me think about the software development because it was like, it was peeling the onion. You know, I had issues with a particular valve and I tried to fix it a number of different ways. And finally, I got it fixed at the end after giving up and then coming back to it, which is so, so similar to the feeling of doing software development. Um, just facing issues, trying to figure out how to do things, watching videos, you know, the whole process felt similar. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's problem solving, right? I mean, yeah, that's, what, yeah. that's what software development is. Um, it's you have a problem and then, okay, what are the steps to go and, and fix it? And you, you have to do a combination of experience and trial and error and looking for help from others. And so those kinds of skills are so important, not just in writing software, but in just real life. Right. And there was a place, you know, I think the whole thing would have gone a lot faster, but there was this situation I ran into where uh, I shut off the water, you know, at the sink valve and, um, and opened the pipe and it was like, oh, the water is still kind of coming through this valve, even though it's shut off. So obviously the valve is bad. And it's not a problem, right? Like it was mostly shut off. And if I connect the hose to it, then, you know, it's not going to create enough pressure in that hose to really leak or anything. So I could have just lived with that. And, and Kelly was kind of like, yeah, just leave it, you know, hit it up next time. And I was like, no, but I'm in here. I got this broken valve. This is the time, you know, I'm in this code right now. This mm-hmm. is the time to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that wouldn't have been an option for me at all. That would have drive me nuts <laughs> to just leave it. Yes, yeah, totally. Absolutely. There's no way I could leave yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that was the difference between a couple hour job and a and a ten hour job is that mm-hmm. one stupid valve and how close it was to the you know to the wall and yeah. You, know, mm-hmm. you can you can start to imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, what what <laughs> like I know just from experience with me, like in my house, like um, you know, it's we're. The house is a little over 20 years old now, and so all the valves are obviously over 20 years old on the the uh, the water lines for all the sinks and whatnot. So if you go and turn them off, um, it usually works. But what happens <laughs> is those 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 rubber gaskets inside those valves are so old yep. and brittle that the, the 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 mere fact of actually turning that valve and applying some stress to it just rips those rubber valves completely apart. Yeah. Right. So now the yep. valve doesn't work anymore. And not only that, then it actually that those pieces of rubber then go up into the waterline and into the faucet, and now get stuck in the faucet itself. And so sometimes uh. get lucky where I can just remove the aerator on the faucet and pluck <laughs> out the, the bits of, of of rubber. And then more unlucky times they actually get stuck inside the faucet housing themselves. And it's like okay, now I got to go change out the faucet. Um, right. But those are the yeah some of the joys of home ownership. 
for sure. Right. And, you know, I think most of our audience is already professional software developers. They're already kind of into their career, but some people are probably just, you know, doing a boot camp or doing, you know, making their way into software development. And uh, not to say don't do it, but if, if you're finding the sort of abstract, you know, cerebral side of software development to be not for you, but you do like problem solving and you do like thinking about systems, then actually plumbing is like a really good option. I think that, you know, contract plumbers make about the same as, as not, not Silicon Valley software developers, but at least outside of Silicon Valley software developers. Um, I know that some good friends of mine do really amazing work. Uh, they live in, uh, they both have houses in Vail. You know, that's not something that mm-hmm. just anybody gets. And when I look at the systems that they built, so you picture a plumber as being up to their elbows and shit, basically, but these dudes are not. They never snake a drain unless it's at their own house. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's such a, such a, like a, underserved area. They're master plumbers and, and they make great money and they do systems level thinking every day. Yeah. Such a great career for them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's my plug for being becoming a plumber. <laughs> the world needs more of them because it's never gonna we're never gonna be able to afford plumbers soon if there's if there's fewer and fewer, which is what is actually happening in the world. Yeah. They'll become like COBOL programmers. <laughs> yeah. Um, right on. So today I'm super excited to do our topic because it's a topic that people have ta- requested kind of like the last time we did virtual machines and containers. Um, somebody was like, oh, are you doing micro VMs? And it's like, shut up. We didn't get to it. Today <laughs> we're finally here. We got to it. We're getting to it. We're, we'll, we're not there yet. We're about to get there. <laughs> we're still on plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, we're going to talk about micro VMs, and, and this is going to be a series, I believe. Chris, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, and may, I mean, at first when I was looking at putting this together, I was thinking, I was like, okay, let's let's do an episode on micro VMs and kind of like tease out, like, are these? This is the future for containers. And in kind of doing some research and looking at the landscape, um, it it kind of made sense to kind of think of this just more of an, in the context of really what's next for containers so we've we've you know we started off there was virtual machines then we had containers um those have been pretty pretty well established now we have a great ecosystem around them and all the tooling and whatnot but now we're starting to hear some some other new things things like micro vms um is definitely a a big one and but micro vms is not the only thing out there um there's 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 actually other things going on that are pretty interesting um, some of them pretty established as well. It's not brand new. So things like unikernels, like what is a unikernel and what is it? Um, what are some of the problems it's trying to address? And it's a rare and elusive kernel. <laughs> yes, well, I mean the thing. So just you know, a little bit of a spoiler alert: unikernels basically run single process, right? So single, single process, single horn. Um, so there is some comparisons mm-hmm. there to. Uh, to rainbows and sparkles and sprinkles and whatnot <laughs> with the unicorns. And and then there's other things like like new sandboxing techniques, like what Google's doing with their GVisor project as well. So lots of you know interesting things going on, and a lot of this is being driven by the demands of cloud computing and the very kind of um, th- that's a you know it's it's a it's a vertical, right? It's a niche niche. Um, in the market and what the kind of features and capabilities it needs. So we've talked about virtual machines and how basically it's, it's mocking the entire computer and all the kind of devices that you need in order to run an unmodified guest OS. But, you know, in the cloud computing environment, we don't need that stuff. Um, and so that's what like is now where a lot of the development is. And for some of these, these these new technologies um, that are starting to get a lot of play, they're really addressing that space of like, hey, we don't need. There, there's we're starting to give and take, right? So these are the the combinations, the mutations, the the merging, if you will, between the the good things about virtual machines and the good things about containers. And so mm-hmm. that's what we're gonna that's what we'll be talking about over this episode, and and definitely a follow up episode. It may be it may be three, depending on how how far along we get. But really looking at things like micro VMs, unikernels, sandboxes, and just 
why these things exist, um, why you should know about them, how you might be able to use them, should you use them, um, those kinds of questions, just breaking it down. Cool. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, you told me, so let's get into it. <laughs> so, with, so with that, why don't we just like kind of like just do a little bit of, of recap um, on just what the current container landscape looks like. And um, so we, we have our tried and true friends, virtual machines and containers, right? And so, right. and again, for, for those folks listening, if you haven't listened to our four episode series on virtual machines versus containers revisited, um, which are episodes 81 through 84, please go back to those. Um, lots of really, really good, solid foundational knowledge there for just really understanding like what virtual machines are what they do, how they do it, and then what containers are and what they do and how they do it, and then comparing and contrasting those those two technologies, right? Because th- this is what we live with each and every day. So just as a quick recap of that, so with virtual machines, this is dealing with full virtualization, right? So the virtual machine, it's running a full copy of, of the operating system and a virtual copy of all the hardware, and so it is basically simulating everything that it needs to from a hardware standpoint so that you can run an unmodified guest OS on that virtual machine without without that guest OS knowing that it's running virtually. It thinks it's running on a on just a bare metal computer, right? So right. everything that needs to be emulated, simulated in that environment is from the from the virtual machine. And if you want the if you want the part where where I interrupt Chris and say what does all that mean actually then go back to the episodes because that's where I do that I'm not going <laughs> to do that right now. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, and so uh, you know part of that is the, there's the hypervisor right, and so the hypervisor is that um, that piece of software that's managing the hardware um, on behalf of the virtual machines. So it's a key a key part of of virtual machines is that hypervisor. And then another key thing to keep in mind here is that with each each virtual machine is isolated from any other virtual machines on that that particular physical server that it may be on, right? So each virtual machine they have their own guest OS and they have their own and therefore they have their own kernel, right? So pretty strong right. isolation. But on the other hand, it's also like because it's it's kind of a generic. Um, environment where it's basically trying to simulate it's simulating everything emulating everything it needs to in order to run that unmodified guest OS it's pretty it's pretty heavy handed right it's pretty heavyweight stack and so therefore VMs typically startup times are quite lengthy they require a lot of resources um, but they do provide that strong isolation and security so um after that, you know, we have containers, and containers are virtualization at the OS level. And so this is really gives rise from the some of the virtualization, isolation, and resource management mechanisms that come from the operating system kernel. And typically when we talk about containers, we're talking about Linux containers because Linux has some core technologies there that we've we've talked about. Again, we we've talked about these at length, but in general, you know. We're talking about things like namespaces and C groups, which are allowing we're using um, kernel level features to isolate processes on that are running on the on on the computer to provide that OS level virtualization. Right. A key thing with containers is that um, they are sharing the same single kernel with each other and the host. So. You know, again, these these containers are relying on those virtualization isolation mechanisms of the the Linux kernel. They're all sharing the same kernel. Um, so this is one of the, so th- these are it's it's both the pro and the con, right? So the pro is that this means that containers and they they're they're not emulating all the hardware of the system. Um, they're not spinning up you know a brand new version of of the operating system. So they're very lightweight. Um, they're very quick to spin up, but on the downside, there's we have some security isolation concerns, right? Because they are sharing the same kernel across all these different containers, as well as with the host. And so, in general, I mean that's that's a, it's a less secure posture, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And I think that's the 
that's the kind of key, right? It's like um, virtual machine isolation is trusted enough to the point where literally Pepsi and Coke can be running on the same machine and, and the two companies have no idea and kind of trust that. And it literally does happen in the cloud, like literally have competing companies potentially running on the same physical hardware. Um, whereas really nobody is saying that that's an okay thing to do with containers. There's nobody that's like, oh yeah, yeah, trust the container. It's going to keep your your stuff completely isolated from any other container that's running on the same machine. Um, but at least that's the sense that I get. Like mm-hmm. containers, yeah, they, yeah, sure, go ahead and run your two different programs on the same machine, like your two different applications for your company. But you know, best not be putting sensitive data that can't that's not allowed. You know, one app that has sensitive data and another app that has other sensitive data, and the two should not be mixed, should not be running in the same mm-hmm. guest OS or host OS. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. As a, as a general rule, that's absolutely been the case. Like, if you're in a multi-tenant environment, um, having containers from multiple tenants on the same host has been very problematic. And mm-hmm. most um, uh, vendors out there have have gone to lengths to kind of give those isolation guarantees by essentially having separate VMs for every one of the yep. of the um, customers that are running containers, right? Um, mm-hmm. To give that isolation. And so those are the that's virtual machines versus containers. We now kind of talked about some of the limitations, problems with containers, and so that's really given rise now to some of these these other things that are um, these new technologies that are coming online that are trying to address it. Right? They're they're basically right. they're all about just Chris. It's like it's it's, so, it's such a simple problem, right? It's like the it's so dead simple. It's like what do we want? Trustworthy isolation. How do we want it? As fast as containers. Like that's it. <laughs> could you could you chant that a little bit more <laughs> melodically? <laughs> Come on, like, it's like let's let's have some passion with it or something, right? Like, what do we want? Isolation. How do we want it? We want it now and fast. Right. Yes. Thank you for right. doing that for there me. I wasn't going to do it. All right. You're welcome. Too embarrassed on on the podcast to go all the way. Yeah. To I third am. circle. I'm, I'm okay with it, obviously. So, so yeah. So, and and that's exactly what's happening, right? So, like, so we're hearing these terms like micro VMs. Um, you may or may not have heard about unikernels, but these things are are getting more attention now, right? Because they they really are doing exactly that. What we just chanted for. It's all about like we we need that security and the isolation that's offered by VMs, but. We can't. We don't want this big heavyweight stack that slows us down and takes up inordinate amount of resources. Especially given the fact that we're running in a very specialized environment for these particular applications, which is we're running in the cloud, right? So this is lights out data centers, right? We don't need to emulate like a video terminal. Um, we don't need to have all these different hardware devices. Um, to be to be emulated. I love that term you just used. I've never heard that one before. Lights <laughs> out data centers. Oh really? Yeah, that's that's yeah. a that's a that's an old that's an old term. But I mean, it's it really it. I guess because I kind of lived through that, right? This goes back to the days at Microsoft um, when I was working at the Microsoft Network, and we were moving MSN from that proprietary dial up X twenty five network to the internet. So we had a data center. Um, and you know, to begin with, we didn't have the there wasn't the remote tools to connect to these machines. Um, you know, these were Windows servers, um, not. I mean, Linux actually at that point didn't even exist yet. Sure, I don't yeah. think right. So um, it was we had to actually physically go to the data center, right, and to go get on the machine, and and really the the. Um, uh, the solution there was every one of these racks would have a KVM tray. Um, so it's a, a 1U high tray. You slide it out, pop it open, and then there's a keyboard. There's a display that flips up. Um, and then you have a little trackpad mouse type thing. And then you have cables connected to all the different servers that are in that rack that you can then toggle between them and, and whatnot. And now you can control these these um, these computers and, and do whatever it is that you needed to do. Um, so you know, a few years later, being able to now remote into these machines, mm-hmm. that was such a big deal, right? It's like you didn't have to go to the data center anymore. You didn't have to use these these KVM switches, and um, 
And that's when kind of started hearing the like this lights out data center, right? There's no even there's no reason to turn on the lights because there's no one in there. Um, right, so got keep it. the lights out, and you're just remoting in. And that was definitely just a huge, a huge step. And obviously, that's where we're at now. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah. So so you know, we're, we're it's in a very constrained um, environment with like, and we can take advantage of the fact that like there's only our requirement list that we have to support is much less than what it was when, you know, VMware came out with their, um, with their software for virtual machines. Um, so that's what these, these new technologies are addressing. And so micro VMs are exactly what they sound like. Um, so they are virtual machines. They have a hypervisor, um, but they are, only emulating the bare minimum, right? They're the, the, the absolute minimum of what needs to be simulated in, for these types of environments. And so therefore, there are, they do have the speed and resource efficiency and efficiency of containers. But because they are VMs, they give us that security and that workload isolation. Can we give a quick list of like things that a virtual machine might virtualize, uh, and then you know, list a couple of the things that a micro VM doesn't need to virtualize. Sure. So I mean, like we talked about, like you know, video. Um, we talked about. I mean, you could have things like sound. Um, you could mm-hmm. have silly things like um, other I/O devices, like pens and um, styluses and and whatnot. Um, as a as a flip side of that, you can think of like a, a micro VM. One in particular, the Firecracker, which we're going to talk a lot more about, um, they only have support for um, five. There's only five emulated devices in the, the Firecracker VM. So there's one network device. There's one block I.O. device. There's one networking device, which is VSOC. There's a serial console. And then they emulate a one-button keyboard controller. Yeah, that's kind of what and I'm... that one that one <laughs> that one button is just they only have that in there because they needed something in order to allow a VM to be reset, and so this okay. is the basically the on off button. Um, so those are so those are the only five things being being emulated. So could you imagine like yeah. having a full blown computer with only those devices? Right, it'd be very limited. Right, and I just want to say that it's. The the thing that makes it micro is not not just like and this is what I'm coming to understand like as I as I speak it's not just leaving out whole things which is awesome leaving out the whole video virtualization is awesome you don't need any of it but it's also narrowing the path for other things so like networking for the OS for for like a typical Linux OS networking is like it's this big thing and you have to have generic handlers to, okay, well, what kind of networking am I doing? Okay, now what kind of drivers am I loading? Whereas if you're making a micro VM, you can know all of that in advance. And so it's like, I'm going to just cut away all this extra garbage code that we don't need because I know this is my network device. This is the type of networking I'm doing and this is the driver I need for it. And instead of even having a driver, it's just like the driver is in the micro VM code itself, maybe. Like there isn't like a specialized driver loading system even. It's just mm-hmm. like, oh, like we, we don't need that. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And, and so that and that's exactly how these designs are being driven. They're just they're make and they're making design decisions as well, right? So like yeah, there there's like Firecracker has these five emulated devices. There's one for network, and when they did when they did that, they made very specific design decisions about what that network device looks like. And its mm-hmm. capabilities, right? So it's very specifically, it's VSOC. And, you know, we can, that's like a whole nother episode to go into the details of like what that means um, and, you know, the difference between TAP networking versus VF, VF virtual um, Ethernet. But it's just a very specific design decision to like, again, limit that service area. And it, it causes then folks that are developing against these things, right, to have to make trade offs. Um, so, like, there's, Certain environments, like Firecracker, only supports a certain number of guests um, uh, that it can that it actually can run on the Firecracker hypervisor. Sure, yeah. But again, these are these are the the, the trade offs that they're they're making, right? In order to real again, it's specialized to the very specific environment, um, and 
by doing so, that's how they can just really cut away all this other um, support and reduce that heavyweight stack into something very, very lightweight that is super fast and doesn't require a lot of resources. But again, gives us that high isolation that we get from from a VM. Right, right. Cool. So that's so that's micro VMs. So micro VMs really just virtual machines. They're doing the same thing. They have a hypervisor. They can take advantage of hardware virtualization. Um, and but they're just very very fast, and they're not using a lot of resources. So um, and we'll 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 get into like what are some of the the current implementations of micro VMs and how they work. Um, another thing I wanted to just bring up is is one of these these other kind of technology. Um, stacks that's getting more and more play is unikernels and and unikernels they're not new um, they've been around for a while um, for easily four or five years if if not if not even longer and they're they're different um, in in how they're implemented but some of the the design goals are the same so so what is a unikernel so what it is 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 you it's a lightweight, immutable OS that's compiled specifically to run a single application. Okay. Right. So, so really, what it means is it means it. it you can think of this as I'm only going to run one process, one application. So let's, let's just say it's an Nginx web server. Mm-hmm. So you know it needs certain operating system library primitives and and whatnot, but not the whole gamut. And so what a unikernel does is a unikernel just says, okay, let's go and make a, let's go compile this, this application and pull in all that, the operating system resources, the functionality that it does need, put that all together into a single bundle. And now that becomes a unikernel. So we no longer have a full-blown operating system. There's just this one thing, this one entity. Um, and we can't. It's not going to be possible for us to run more than one of these things. Um, if we wanted to run another process, like instead of the Nginx web engine, we also wanted to run like Tomcat or something like that. We couldn't do that, right? We'd have to go. Yeah, you can't even like you can't even. Yeah, you think about uh, like I'm just thinking about containers, which is obviously a totally different animal. But like with that, you can you can do you can run different. Processes as a container, mm-hmm. but with this, it sounds like you can't. Like you it, can't. No. It, yeah, you can only run mm-hmm. an nginx. So, one of the things that occurs to me is that, like, maybe you could get rid of a lot of operating system decisions, like even some like scheduling type stuff. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah. that's that's what's that's what this is taking advantage of, right? So, it's saying there's only a single process. Um, so, you know, I don't have to. Um, Worry about scheduling amongst processes. Um, yep. You can still have you're still going to have multi-threading support, right? Threads, so there's yep, there's yep. that, but you don't have to worry about like like scheduling processes and whatnot, right? You don't have to whole bunch of code just gone. Yeah, or just the code yeah. for creating processes, right? Like fork gone, gone. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> boy, but what a pain though, right? Like it, it feels hard, right? Like uh, it essentially feels like. You're compiling your application into or with the kernel, um, so it better be an application that you run a lot of because you don't want to do this for your like little form, you know, website, right? Like it feels like if you're going to be running a hundred thousand instances of this application on across, you know, a fleet of machines, okay, then maybe this starts to feel worth it. Otherwise, having to compile a specialized kernel for every application that you write feels hard to me. Just off the top, off the top of my head, unless the, maybe the tooling around it makes it easy. Sure, yeah. So there's 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 tooling around this that can, mm-hmm. um, and there's there's more of an ecosystem that's building up. So actually, building these images is not too terribly difficult um, anymore, especially with some of the tooling that that's coming online. Um, and so it, it's 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 one of those things. So okay, so what does this give you? So. So unikernels are giving you, um, and so so something else to to consider with unikernels is because there's only one process running, um, it has a single address space model, and so what this means is that there's no user versus kernel address space. Mm-hmm. 
there's only a single outer space, right? Which is really kind of like, whoa. <laughs> like, <laughs> when you think about it, right? Because it's like, back, I mean, if... Well, actually, can you just remind us what an address space is? Yeah, so, I mean, so this is, okay. I mean, this goes back to just operating systems, um, especially multitasking operating systems one-on-one. So back in the days of, say, like Windows... 3.1 or whatnot, right? That didn't have this concept. It didn't have the concept of a kernel and a protected kernel and and memory that only the kernel had access to. And so that meant that you could have an application that crashed your entire machine, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had to go and reboot the entire machine. Mm-hmm. And so then operating systems got more sophisticated and they had that clear separation of it. So this way, if an application was had an error in it and crashed, only the application crashed, not the entire operating system. Right. right. So so there's this separation, right, between between the kernel the op- of the operating system and application programs, user programs, user space programs. So with That's so funny that you bring up Windows as an example because there's been separation of of kernel and user address spaces forever, like since VMS, like way mm-hmm, back. Mm-hmm. But Windows just didn't do that. Until later. Right, right, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so with, with unikernels, they're like, look, you only have one process running, so it doesn't even make sense to like, do that. And we already pay, you pay a huge performance penalty of doing the, to the translations between user and kernel address space. And so with unikernels, you don't have that, so you get a huge performance boon just from just from having that, right? Along with the mm-hmm. fact that you only have the very minimal amount of code on there to su- the operating system code to support your application. Um, there's not all the other overhead that goes along with it. Um, and so they're very, so it's very, fa- so performance wise, very, very fast. But then also it has a great security um, model as well, right? Because every single, every unikernel has its own kernel, there's no sharing. Of kernels, right? Because the kernel's basically baked into this to this image um, type thing, so it can only talk. It's it's there's that strong isolation, right? And typically, unikernels will run on hypervisors mm-hmm. or um, you know maybe bare metal as well. So um, so anyway, so there and there's lots of implementations for unikernels out there. We'll we'll hopefully get to this in, in more depth as well as we as we go on. But just something I wanted to to, to kind of highlight that it's not just micro VMs. There's also this really different approach um, that is right. is gaining momentum um, with unikernels. We cover a lot of information here on MobyCast, and if you've ever wanted to go back and remind yourself of something we talked about in a previous episode. It can be hard to search through our website and transcripts to find exactly what you're looking for. Well, now it's a lot easier. All you have to do is go to mobicast.fm slash show dash notes and sign up. We'll send you our weekly super detailed outline that we use to actually record the show. A lot of times, this outline contains more information than we get to during our hour on the air. So sign up and get weekly MobyCast cheat sheets to all of our episodes delivered right to your inbox. A third approach that is out there is this this idea of just sandboxing, um, and so sandboxing is a technique where it's really addressing those security concerns that we have with containers where they have the shared kernel, and so what it does is the sam basically sandbox a sandbox technique is sandboxing the kernel used by those containers to be a separate kernel through just re-implementation of the Linux kernel itself. So one so project doing this is 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 something called Gvisor from Google. And what okay. Gvisor really is is they've basically have they've implemented the Linux kernel as software written in Go in the Go programming language mm-hmm. and that's what containers are using when they need to access kernel level syscalls, they're actually they're not talking to the host kernel anymore. They're actually going through this intermediary. They're going through Gvisor, and that provides this isolation. So it's kind of it's, it's it's not a virtual machine, but it's also not doing that shared kernel as well. So it's somewhere in between. So it it doesn't really help with performance at all with containers or anything, but it is giving. 
it is addressing some of those security concerns because they're no longer sharing the same kernel. Well, I was going to say, it seems like it would be addressing performance, right? Because it's, it's containers and they're already fast, right? Um, well, it is. Sandboxes but it, are but essentially it, containers. But it's actually yeah? slowing down containers. It's, it's, okay. it's right, because you're going now through an intermediary. Right, right. So slowing, but slowing down containers is that's kind of interesting. It's like slowing down. You can either speed up the VMs or slow down the containers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, security I get, comes at a price, right? So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, for for whatever reason, we were talking about that, talking about um, essentially doing a better job of of making the OS respect security boundaries between processes. That's essentially what that sandbox sounds like it's doing. Um, seems reasonable, right? Because um, you know, even hardware has sometimes been responsible for the problem of leaking information across OSs. I think it was Heartbleed was the name of the of the Intel issue, where memory was le- you know read memory from one OS was readable from another, like one virtual machine was readable in an, inside another virtual machine, um, and it was be- it was literally because of this like. Leak in of of information in heart, you know, in silicon sandboxes. Like, right? Is that the name of the one? No, um, but I mean, but yeah, we. I mean, we have there's there's we have these bugs and security stuff. Heartbleed was specific to SSL, um, and it had to do. Oh, with, that, yeah, it's not that send, one. You send a certain. Um, uh, yeah, um, you send heartbleed. the heart. You send the heartbeat command, and and it basically exposed a buffer of of, of memory that you could then. Yeah, heartbleed was like a couple of years before the one I'm thinking of, and I just can't remember the name of it. Um, it was it hit every single Intel um, chip, mm-hmm. every single one, yeah. and it was like two years ago. Yes, yes. Um, Whatever that one was is <laughs> the one I'm talking about. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, and, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Um, but yeah, like that, I guess the point is, uh, if you've got multiple things happening on a chip, then the chip has to provide some security to prevent those things from knowing about each other. And also, uh, the actual operating systems and hypervisor do that too. And there's no reason, I guess, that uh, like like in these sandboxes, that an individual kernel um, couldn't also do that. Uh, but it just it would have to have better isolation between its processes, and and I guess as I'm sitting here thinking about this, like the one of the reasons that probably kernels don't provide out of the box better isolation between processes is just because being able to access information across processes is so valuable. It's like a thing that people want typically, rather than a thing that people don't want. Yes. Like, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Okay. Well. Cool. So here we are. We've talked about sandboxes. We've talked about unikernels, and we've talked about micro VMs. Right. Yeah. So let's. Why don't we? Why don't we dive in and start talking about some of the the micro VM implementations um, and kind of now that we kind of understand a little bit about like the characteristics and the landscape out there. Let's let's go and like what is out there and and how do we use these things? So why don't we start with Firecracker? So Firecracker is a micro VM. This has been developed by Amazon. Um, for AWS, and it really comes out of the the, the, the issues that they, they had in supporting Lambda. Um, so Lambda launched in 2014, functions as a service, right, where you could go and, like, here's my, my I'm now going to write code and at the function level and go and run this in, in a serverless fashion for me on, on some machine. And... So really great from a from a user standpoint, it was um, you know kicked off a whole new portion of the industry with it. But you know on Amazon side, they had to figure out like well, how are they going to do this, and how are they going to um, ensure things like security and and um, isolation for their for their customers. So when Lambda first launched, they ended up going. They had to um, go with the decision of. They would have a virtual machine per customer, so I think they can make it the scheduler smart enough so that if you had multiple functions running in Lambda, as long as they were in the same account, they would run. They could be scheduled on. They could run on the same virtual machine, but you couldn't run a Lambda that was being used by some other customer. Some on on virtual machine that was used by some other customer, right? So pretty um, pretty heavy weight. If you will, for running these functions, think about it. I mean, you're 
you, at, in a worst case scenario, you're spinning up a VM for every function that gets mm-hmm. that gets run on Lambda, right? Yep. But, but they had to do that because that was the only way they could really guarantee security and the isolation that they know that their customers wanted. They also like security is job one for for AWS. Like so, they don't yes. like. Could you imagine like what would happen as like six months into this and it's like they're getting all this great great usage of people using it and then they find out oh <laughs> someone's figured out how to how to get you know to to get through to us, someone else's functions on a machine so they've written some 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 code or or whatnot to to go and access someone else's functions and have a security leak that would be just just catastrophic um, for I, can, like, I can imagine what would happen. Yeah. And it, now I know that it was called Meltdown. Mm-hmm. And it happened in January of 2018. And I also know that it, it was an Intel chip issue that was making it possible for a single process to read all of the memory on the chip. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was uh, there was a patch figured out and Amazon had it applied to every single computer like Across their entire cloud, super fast. Despite the fact that it actually slowed everything down a little bit, like people were noticing, "Ooh, some of my stuff got slowed down a little bit." But security being job one, mm-hmm. they'd rather they'd rather slow all of their customers down than potentially let that memory leak from one customer to another. Yeah, I mean that was one where um, yeah, I was like, "Oh, the fix is going to cause things to run about thirty percent slower." Yeah, and yeah. so it's like boom overnight. It's like kind of see. Those performance degradations, but <laughs> you're not leaking. The memory. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're, you've actually got some security. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, meltdown specter was yep. was definitely um, one of those chip issues. Right. Yep. Well, cool. So we've got lambda, and it's a daunting problem. Mm-hmm. We've, we're trying to run functions. We have to start up virtual machines for every single function invocation. Unbelievably, you know, huge overhead. But they decided to take it on anyway. Because they saw the future. Absolutely. Well, and again, I mean, it was just from a from a business standpoint, very expensive for them to run these um, functions, right? Given that they have to spin up a, a VM for every one of them. So, so that so that gave rise to some, some thinking of like, well, how can we make this better? And that that gave rise to the development of Firecracker. So, they, I believe development started in 2017. Okay. And started going to production in 2018. Okay. And um, so, just as a, a bit of a, a benchmark, as of now, um, so call it December 2019 or January 2020, they're running trillions of Lambda invokes per month on Firecracker. No problem. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a <laughs> lot, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So, so let's talk. So, a little bit about like, okay, so how does it work? So, so Firecracker, it's it's a lightweight. Virtual machine monitor, so a VMM, otherwise known as a hypervisor, right? So, so it is a it's it's it is a hypervisor. It's using the Linux kernel-based virtual machine, so KVM. So this is a KVM-based hypervisor. Um, and so, just as a, a ref- so we talked a bit about KVM as one of the popular hypervisors back in the VMs versus containers. Miniseries, but just mm-hmm. kind of as a as a as a refresh. So KVM, it ha- it's it's a virtualization module inside the Linux kernel, which then can turn the Linux kernel into a hypervisor, and it's able to run multiple VMs um, running unmodified guest OS images. Each VM has its own private virtualized hardware. And it can also, it's leveraging hardware virtualization, right? So those CPU virtualization extensions like Intel VT or AMD V, it can use those, those, those chip capabilities for, for doing right. the hardware virtualization. So very, so very, very fast hypervisor, um, very performant, strong security and isolation. Um, and from an architecture standpoint, there's two pieces to it. There's the kernel component, um, and then there's a user space component. And so the kernel is that it's the it's a loadable kernel module um, that provides the core virtualization infrastructure, and then it also has a processor specific portion to it. So whether you're running on Intel or AMD or whatnot, the user space component um, that's responsible for kind of doing the hardware emulation and typically 
here you see um, there, there's a there's software called um, QEMU, and you'll probably if you're, if you're in this space you'll you'll see this this is pretty popular. It's used a lot, so it's it's full blown emulation. It's it's a user land program that does this hardware emulation, and it's used by KVM for I/O um, emulations. And it is it it's 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 again very popular. It's performant. Um, the QEMU team says like they can run KVM and Zen virtual machines with near native performance. The reason why we're talking about this now is that this is where Firecracker comes in. So Firecracker is KVM based, um, so it's still so it uses that KVM kernel component, but the user space component. That's what Firecracker is. Um, it's it's a it's a it's an alternative to QEMU, mm. right? So th- that's where that's where Firecracker slots into this. And so the you know again keep in mind QEMU it's that full blown emulation versus Firecracker. This has been purpose built for just this space, and specifically they they purpose built it for at, to begin with to run Lambda functions. Uh-huh. You know, so they're think of this as like it's really more in the in the realm of serverless computing. Yeah. And so it's only emulating the bare minimum that it needs to. Would that be related at all to some of the things that you can't do in Lambda? Like do you think that that is part of it or is it just you know what I mean? Like there there were certain things at least that for a while you couldn't do uh accessing certain Hardware, hardware, for example, from a function like maybe you wanted to do um, some calculations on a GPU that didn't seem like it was a possibility with Lambda. Um, yeah, do you think that some of the some of the limitations mm-hmm. around Lambda were based on just limitations of what the VM was able to do? Um, probably not so much, just because again, you know, Lambda launched in 2014, um, and that wasn't using Firecracker, right? That was using mm-hmm. basically just EC2 instances, mm-hmm. virtual machines. Yeah, and you still couldn't do some of that stuff. Yeah, so so a big part of that was just like, okay, these are the types of instances that we're going to be using. Um, this is how we're going to lock them down. We don't want people accessing, you know, just disk space indiscriminately. Like, there's, we're going to put some limitations around it, and just for them mm-hmm. to be able to operate it in a in a scalable way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, limitations came from that. Um, and then, once they started using Firecracker, that may or may not have imposed some additional limitations. But I, I think, from a from a user standpoint, it was. Probably pretty much transparent, right? Um, so I'm sure. I, I mean, I, I don't think it was like, oh, before I could do this in my code, and now that doesn't work anymore, right? Um, now I could see maybe some of those limitations getting baked into Firecracker. So maybe you know, you talk about disk access and stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of that was just a, a code limitation that turned into like a you know micro VM style limitation. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the, you know, they are make you know make no mistake about it. They they made design decisions and trade offs based upon this very specific environment that they were shooting yeah. for, right? Yeah. So it, they definitely you know if it if it wasn't supported in the original version um, and they really didn't see a need for it and people weren't complaining about it, like they're definitely not going to support it. And when they when they did Firecracker, right? Especially if not supporting it could like lower startup times yes. or something. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. cool. And so, in addition to being like this very purpose-built um, alternative to QEMU for basically serverless containers um, and only emulating the bare minimum, it's got some additional features above and beyond that are kind of really useful in this environment. So, one, you know, there is a RESTful API for controlling Firecracker um, that it's offered. They do things like resource rate limiting for micro VMs, which Obviously, like that's pretty important for things like Lambda functions to be able to say, like, hey, you can only use this much memory, right, or this much mm-hmm. CPU. So having this this concept of resource rate limiting, um, and then there's also there's a micro VM metadata service that allows for sharing of configuration data between the host and and guest as well. So just some some additional features that really are kind of useful in this in this environment of like, hey, I want to run lots of these things on a single host and I need some way of managing them and, and doing coordination and whatnot. Okay. 
That that actually probably was inspired from, by you know the container world and the Docker demon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, some other things to keep in mind with Firecracker is it can run Linux um, Guest, basically. It can also run OSV Guest. Um, OSV is a unikernel implementation. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk about OSV later. Um, but for the most, just so this is not, this is not going to run Windows Guest, right? It's not any kind of any type of operators. It's very, again, very specific. It's, and for the most part, we can just kind mm-hmm. of think of it as being Linux. Um, it's, and obviously it's in KVM as well, although KVM can run um, Windows images as well. But um, it's written in Rust, which is kind of interesting as well. Um, one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I did that is because it is a, it's a memory safe programming language, so a lot easier to, to write this, this low level code safely using using a, a language like Rust as opposed to C or C++. You know what? I mean, are we getting close to the end here? Because if, if we are and, and we still have like 10 minutes left, we we should say what that means, a memory-safe programming language. If not, we'll have to save it for another time. Um, <laughs> we're, um, we're nowhere near um, being done. There's still a lot to, to talk about here. So if you want to talk about... Um, you know what we mean by memory-safe programming language? We can. Um, let's do it. I already interrupted us. I I don't know what that means exactly, and I I feel like, gosh, I wish I knew that mm-hmm. so that this whole thing just sat in my head better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's really this is the evolution, you know, the evolution of programming languages, and um, you know, kind of goes back to like in in the past with you know things like C and C plus plus, where you're doing all the memory management yourself right so yep. when you need to access memory you're you're allocating the memory um and then when you know you're done with it you're supposed to free it but mm-hmm. if you forget to free the memory that you used that's a memory leak right yep and so that's a problem so if, especially for long-running processes like over time if you've got this subtle bug where you forgot to free some memory and to mark it as no longer being used then eventually your program would crash because it'd run out of memory sure so that's that's not memory safe Right. Right. So, so that's what languages like Rust and Go give you is some of that memory memory management capabilities. It also protects you from you know overwriting memory um, addresses and whatnot, so that you're not accessing memory um, that you really okay. shouldn't be doing and whatnot. I think I can put this into the slot of like has the has the memory management of a modern language like java but but compiles all the way down to talk directly to the kernel instead of uh into a, its own little vm like java virtual right machine. right it's not it's not running on a virtual it's as a virtual machine like the java virtual machine which is such a unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> unfortunate term right because because the java right, virtual yeah. machine is not the same thing as when we when we're talking about right now as virtual machines Right, but yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks. That helps. Sure. Um, so, so that's what Firecracker is, and kind of like um, you know what its general architecture looks like. So, let's talk a little bit about just what are the benefits of Firecracker. Obviously, I think we, we, we kind of already know. Um, you know, we've we've kind of harped on this. So, security is is a big benefit, performance and, and efficiency. So let's so let's talk about security a bit. So. Because it is a virtual machine, because it has the hypervisor, right? There is that strong isolation between the virtual machines and their host. It also has this very limited device model, um, where it's it's only it's only emulating devices that are really needed for this particular type of of environment. So we talked about this. There's only five emulated devices here, right? So there's that one for networking. There's um, one for block level I/O. There's the VSOC. Um, virtualization, um, virtual device, serial console, and that one button keyboard for for doing the reset. I want to nitpick on just another term. Um, you're sort of using virtualizing and emulating interchangeably. Are you seeing that in the literature too that you're reading? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you'll you'll. It, I think it's. Um, it, it depends on. Uh, I mean, there might be some subtle differences, like on when one term is more correct than the other one. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, 
definitely typically with devices you'll see emulation for hardware um like emulating devices and virtualization is more of just i think more of a general term but yeah at the end of the day like, it's 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 kind of for as, as far as we're concerned it's kind of like the same same thing okay. it's, it's it's we can kind of almost interchange them okay cool also from a security standpoint they um they have a uh, kind of a twofold approach to security so one is virtualization so that just by virtue of ha- having virtual machines and their own guest OS that's separate from everything else, that's one boundary. But then they also have the concept of this jailer. And and really what that is, is they are they're sandboxing or jailing the the hypervisor in a process jail. Um, so what they're doing is they're using Linux C groups and they're also using seccomp. B- BPF. So the, this is kind of it's kind of interesting. So it's using some of the same techniques that containers use to get isolation. Uh-huh. And so they're doing that. They're using some of that stuff to jail the hypervisor and to make sure that it, it has only access to a small, tightly controlled list of syscalls. Oh, interesting. So just an additional layer, right? It's just again, security is top of mind. It's job one, and so you know. The firecracker process doesn't need access to a whole bunch of stuff, so let's jail it. Okay. And there is a also a um, single VM per firecracker process um, as part of that that model as well. So that's so a lot of stuff on the security front. So it definitely gives us strong security isolation from a performance standpoint. You know, again, because everything is so is so streamlined and we have the bare minimum amount of, of emulation being done and the minimal amount of features that we need. It's, it's so the micro VM startup time for it's just the micro VM startup itself, four milliseconds. That's so fast. But before you continue, there was just something that you said really quickly that I kind of tripped over. And I think it's because, um, I maybe wasn't crystal clear on my understanding of the actual definition of firecracker, but you said there's a single VM per firecracker. Our future selves are traveling back in time to address this confusion instead of having you wait for next episode. So the phrase that we've been talking about and kind of getting and stumbling over is single VM per firecracker process. And Chris, um, Maybe you can help me and help everybody by explaining what my confusion was and what our, our miscommunication was around this phrase. Sure, yeah. And like, wow, what great technology, right? To be able to go back in time and kind of edit <laughs> what, what would happen. So, so yeah, we kind of got um, wrapped around the axle a little bit for 10 or 15 minutes over this. this we were going through um, the benefits of Firecracker and specifically security benefits of it. And one of the bullet points that we talked about was like, there is a single VM per firecracker process. And that kind of piqued your interest, John, where you're like, wait a minute, let's talk about that some more. That sounds yeah. kind of weird. Um, mm-hmm. And and I was like, John, don't worry about it. This is just part of the architecture, right? There's lots of components here and whatnot. And this is just one of those ways that it provides some further isolation. And so the confusion was, was, Earlier in the episode, we kind of talked about here's the the landscape of containers now, and then here's where it's going in the future to solve some of these issues with, hey, we don't have the strong isolation with containers like we do with VMs, and we'd like to have that back. And so some of those, um, in surveying that landscape, we said there's micro VMs, which we're, we were talking about. We talked about unikernels and kind of introduced that concept. And when we did introduce unikernels, we said, they're focused on running a single process, right? So it's like a it's like a custom built OS that's just built to run a single process. It pulls in the operating system libraries and all the support code it needs just to run that one process, and that's all that runs inside of that. And that's a unikernel, right? And so then I think when we got to this part of the firecracker process, firecracker discussion, and we said, hey, there's a single VM per fire firecracker process, that led to the connection. Like, wait. Wait, you mean I can only run a single process inside of Firecracker VM? Mm-hmm. And that's not the case at all. 
So yeah, this there's, is, there's potential like ambiguity around the phrase VM per firecracker process, it, especially because it's like which direction does that go? Does that mean one process per VM or one VM per, per process? And I just wasn't picturing that a firecracker process is a thing that lives outside of the virtual machine. Um, that micro that micro VM, like the actual virtual machine that's running your user app. Uh, I guess that's not what's called a firecracker process, confusingly, right? In my mind, that was the firecracker process. Right, exactly. So, so this firecracker process, this is the runtime support that's on the host. It's outside of the VM. Mm-hmm. Inside that firecracker VM, that's the full-up guest operating system, and you can do and which it does include the container runtime, and you can run as many processes as you want inside that. But you can kind of think of it as like just pairing up for like. That piece of the architecture of Firecracker that's outside the VM on the host that's responsible for kind of like guiding that virtual machine and and providing the runtime support. There's a one to one correlation between that particular process and the VM. Yep. So one Firecracker process is not booting up a bunch of VMs. Basically, that's all for, I was saying. Yes. For for <laughs> and 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 it's it's a little bit kind of um, uh, tricky, right? Because Firecracker, the technology, right? It's it's composed of a bunch of different pieces, right? There's agents, there's controllers, there's right, and then and then there's this runtime support, right? Which we just said Firecracker process, and it's like, well, which process are we talking about? So I think again, just realize there's lots of pieces to it. This is the the course the corresponding. Um, Runtime support that's running on the host outside the VM, and it's that one-to-one mapping. So I think at the end of the day, it just means, hey, this is, gives us further strong isolation in that VM VMs, Firecracker VMs, the code running inside that is not sharing this runtime support outside the container on the mm-hmm. host, right? So there's there's less possibility for crosstalk and leaks and outbreaks and whatnot. I mean, I got to push this, Chris. So I like to draw parallels and. A parallel that I want to try to draw is that the firecracker process that we keep talking about is kind of like the equivalent, does the equivalent job as run C does for containers. Obviously containers and micro VMs are different things, but if in a sort of a parallel, like inspired world, I feel like that fire process, firecracker process is kind of like the run C of micro VMs. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good way of thinking of it. Um, Mm-hmm. It's just, and we'll actually uh, next week. <laughs> trying to keep this straight with time travel. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Kata containers, and that will be um, a much uh, more familiar analogy we'll be able to use, right, to to understand this. So, so it's it's it's, it's 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 a good it's a good it's a good point, right? Like. So we we already talked about like container D and run C and how they support containers and. Run C is the low-level runtime support for for creating these, you know, instantiating the containers and and, and bringing them down. Um, so we need something like that for VMs, and so there's some piece of Firecracker that does that, and that's that's that is this. Cool, awesome. Well, now I get it. All Thank right, you, perfect. All right, thanks, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Before, well, before we wrap, let's just talk real quick. Um, we were just going through the benefits of Firecracker. So we talked. So security, we have beat that horse. Um, hopefully, everyone <laughs> agrees that Firecracker takes security very seriously, and you're getting really strong isolation there. We talked about performance again because this is so streamlined, minimal devices emulated. We said the, the base micro VM startup time is four milliseconds. Yep. To actually boot to a guest Linux user space, you're looking at 125 milliseconds. So that's really the the number we care about, right? Because it's the um, the the VMs kind of not useful until you actually have your guest device <laughs> right. in it, right? So yeah. 125 milliseconds. It's a so vanity like, metric, that yeah. four milliseconds. Kind of, yes. yeah. Um, so it's a, it's an eighth of a second um, to bring it. So that's that's very, very it's fast. fast. Very yeah. fast. Um, and then from an efficiency standpoint, just super low memory and CPU overhead, you're looking at less than five megabytes of memory for each one of these VMs. And so all this means, again, you can have thousands of micro VMs per host. And so things like 4,000 micro VMs per host machine 
is absolutely doable, which is kind of mind-boggling. Like if you think about yeah, that, it, I, mean, that, I don't that's, understand that's a, that at that's all. A great, it's like, a great achievement. I mean, you can't run four thousand containers. Um, like, I mean, I don't think that, right. That's the. I mean, it is just too weird. Like, mm-hmm. that's so little memory that I feel like there. It should be like, you know, you should be able to browse through the code of all of it in a day and be like, oh, cool, that mm-hmm. was simple and quick. Yeah, like, right? Because like any sufficient amount of code is going to create a much bigger memory footprint. Yeah, as it does stuff. Just yeah, so what, this is this is the memory footprint, obviously, of the VM, mm-hmm. the VM overhead, right? It's yeah, 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 not the memory load of the guest OS, whatever you do yes, with the guest yes, OS, yes. right? Yeah, so, good point. so there's mm-hmm. that too, right? But yep. assuming you're not using a lot of memory inside the guest OS, this is the the baseline overhead for the Firecracker VM. So you can run thousands of these things. So again, if you're run, using this. For running Lambda functions, right? Each one of those Lambda functions is not going to be using up a lot of memory. You can you can put limits on that. So running thousands of Lambda functions on a single host now are totally doable and possible, and they all have that strong isolation. And so it's a it's just a, a really strong benefit and a big win um, for for running these these kinds of these kinds of application workloads. Cool. There's another one for next week too, because when you said you know thousands of Thousands of these on a single machine, but you also said, but that doesn't count the um, guest OS. It's like, well, then wait a minute. So, how big is a Lambda function and how big is its guest OS? And so, how can you really have thousands of these? So, I'd like to know that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We got our, right. We have our homework cut out for us. I know, man. This is, a, but this is a cutting, cutting, cutting edge stuff. Not very many people are immersed in this. And so, to, to be able to talk about it fluently, come on. That, that's a that's really really hard for for anybody. So yeah, kudos to you for doing what you did. Thank you, Chris. All right, thank you, thank you, John. <laughs> yeah, talk All to you right. next week. All right, see you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being aboard with us on this week's episode of MobyCast. Also, thanks to our producer, Roy England, and I'm our announcer, Stevie Rose. Come talk to us on MobyCast.fm or on Reddit at r slash MobyCast. 